0: Welcome to the Femtech Health Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Mona Arati as our guest. Dr. Arati is a highly experienced gynecologist with over 20 years of experience in minimally invasive and robotic surgery. She has performed over 10,000 procedures and is an expert in endometriosis. Dr. Arati will share her expertise in laparoscopic and robotic surgery, explaining the differences between these procedures and how they have revolutionized the field. She will also discuss the use of laser technology in surgery and the benefits it offers in terms of precision and minimal tissue damage. Additionally, we will explore the intersection of endometriosis and fertility. So get ready for an informative and enlightening conversation with Dr. Mona Arati. Let's dive in. Hi, I'm here today with Dr. Mona Arati. I met Mona years ago at the Endometriosis Summit in Florida. I have to tell a really quick story before we get going. And I literally stood at the show and watched her stand up front in front of a whole group of men physicians. And she was the only woman standing there. And I remember saying, hold on, hold on. I got to take a picture of you. I'm just so excited to have you uh, here with me today because I'm just proud of all the work that you've done. I just want to... introduce you by just saying that she has over 20 years of experience in all of this work. And if I get anything wrong, you can correct me too, Mona. Uh, But 20 years of of experience in minimally invasive and robotic surgery with over 10,000 procedures performed. One of the statements I love that she made is that women with pain and infertility do not have to suffer Women need to be heard and taken seriously so they can return to their lives as quickly as possible. And so welcome, Mona, to our show today. And let's just get started. Tell me how you started all this journey into this work.
1: Oh, my gosh. I think it's my lifelong, my lifelong journey, honestly. I mean, when I was four years old, I said I was going to be a doctor because I wanted to be a healer. And my poor twin brother, like all we ever played was doctor, where I was a doctor and he was a patient. And- that that's pretty much my entire childhood is I would play doctor and then when I was nine I started volunteering in a doctor's office and acted worked as a medical assistant took x-rays like filing front desk blood pressures all of that when I was like nine years old and that's also when I decided I wanted to be a gynecologist because I just felt that women weren't heard and then when I was 12 I went to college and started taking like biochem and pre-med classes and then I actually started medical school at 17 and then 21, started residency at 25, 26, I graduated. And then I started, I felt that gynecology was such an under, under misunderstood kind of profession, especially menstrual disorders. And I really started like delving deep into minimally invasive surgery. I started traveling the world. I took like a year off to go go to France and Italy and Brazil and, and, you know, Australia and just learn everything I could about advanced gynecology. I didn't want to work. I didn't want to like jump right into the workforce. And I had actually applied for a pediatric gynecology and minimally invasive surgery fellowship that I was supposed to start. But then the, br- the director got breast cancer. And so the, ca- the fellowship got canceled which actually may have been the best thing, not for her, obviously, but for me, because I had that year to travel and learn and go to every conference. I was up information. I took tons of courses. And then when I came back and I started working, I, I went into minimally invasive surgery and then robotics very early on, 2007. I joined Henry Ford in their minimally invasive surgery department. And then that led a couple of years later, I got recruited to Cleveland Clinic to their Center for Endometriosis and Fibroids and started publishing and teaching and, you know, just advancing that knowledge. And I just was always so really passionate about minimally invasive surgery and really trying to push the limits of the robot and minimally invasive surgery and laparoscopy. And really my, my philosophy was that I, you had to diagnose the problem and treat it, not just bandaid it. Because I felt like a lot of gynecologists or what we were taught was, oh, you have pain, you have bleeding. Okay. It's either birth control pills or hysterectomy. And I'm like, well, what are you treating? You know, you're either taking out an organ or you're giving a what I call a band-aid pill, which didn't make any sense to me. And that's really where I got into like advanced microsurgery, hysteroscopy, ultrasound diagnosis. I learned how to read MRIs. I learned how to do ultrasounds myself. I like I really delved deep. And at the Cleveland Clinic, they called me the doogie they called me the Sherlock Holmes of gynecology because it was like, if nobody can figure out what's wrong or what's causing this patient's problem, just send her to Dr. Aradi, and she'll like do the digging to figure out what's wrong and how to fix it. And so that's that's kind of what led to that career. And then I traveled. I I wrote book chapters. I I gave lectures. And and that's I mean that's basically my career in a nutshell. And then I came to California for family reasons, and I built the Center for Advanced Gynecology at Dignity Health. And then just recently, like. Three months ago, I just opened my own clinic called the Arati Women's Clinic, which I want to be more holistic, kind of taking care of the whole patient, not just, you know, doing surgery and and that's it. Like I, I wanted to create a center where people could come and get treated as a whole in all aspects, their sexual dysfunction, their bladder dysfunction, their GI dysfunction, their, their, you know, mental health, their, their emotional issues, their, pain, have the surgery. like, And I'm just in the process of building that right now. But I'm I'm really excited to, you know, kind of put that forward because it's not just a legacy of what I've been trying to build over the last 20 years. And the dream was always to have, you know, a comprehensive women's health center. But it's also the legacy of my father who recently passed away with the Oradi name. His family was the caretakers of his area, of the village in Egypt, like all the I mean, I have so many, My he had so many orphan brothers and sisters that I don't even know who my real uncles and aunts are. Like they just, there's so many of them. I, I was like, wow, your mom had like 20 kids. I didn't know that, you know, and it's not, it's just that everybody who needed something would go to that family and and they were the caretakers. And that's where, like, if you look at my logo, I have a little heart with a hug, you know, I want to be the caretaker of women um, with that legacy of my name. And uh, to build that concept of a holistic kind of care approach where we really listen to women and can treat all of their gynecologic issues and, and also address the side effects of those issues. Because things like endometriosis, pelvic pain, abnormal bleeding, infertility doesn't just affect one aspect of a woman's life. It really affects every aspect of her life, whether it be her education, her work, her family life, her sexual life, her fertility, her, her life as a mother, her life as a daughter, her life as a wife. Her life in every way it affects every her mental health so I don't I, I didn't want to just be the fix-it person for the one problem I really want a patient to feel completely cared for in all aspects and, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing so that's where we're right now I
0: love that Mona and just so I understand too like when you look at the big picture of holistic care do you feel throughout your learning experience in the medical field that that you gained some of that knowledge there or was that just already
1: inside of you and did you actually see that holistic pattern like in your education time so honestly both i mean i think i always had that tendency or that kind of innate kind of caring and wanting to listen to people and help be a, you know a helper and healer but also i was lucky enough to go to university of western ontario in canada And their whole curriculum was based around holistic care, even in our our first, and I was part of the curriculum committee. So I actually helped develop the curriculum in medical school and residency. I was the in charge of the curriculum for the residency too. So I was really into education curriculum development, which was really, I mean, it was kind of, I wanted to learn the best. So I'm like, well, if I can control the curriculum, we can learn better. Right. Yeah. but One of the concepts that I taught that was very strongly reinforced in medical school at University of Western Ontario, and I think across Canada, I think Canada has a different philosophy of healthcare than the United States, really. It was a concept called FIFE. And it, it, it's, it stood for feelings, ideas, fears, and expectations. And so every patient, you had to FIFE them. You had to ask them about their feelings. You had to fe- ask them about their fears. You had to... Ask them about their expectations, what their goals are. Like you have to look at the patient as a whole, what their ideas about what their condition is going, they're going through. So this whole, co- like this was really beat into us. Five, five, five. We had to fight the patient. Every single patient had to fight. We had to like write at the end of the note, the fife, you know, what was she afraid of? What are their ideas? And I think that concept and also Canada's very into diagnostics, right? Like the biggest thing you had to come out of a visit with was a differential diagnosis. What is the possible diagnosis for these patients? In the U.S., and actually you can even see this because I took both Canadian and U.S. exams. The exams in Canada are, okay, what do you think the diagnosis is and what test are you going to do to confirm that diagnosis? In the U.S., they never ask what the diagnosis is. It's always like, okay, well, what drug are you going to give them or what test are you going to order? That was the question that would, that on our medicals, you know, on our, you know, exams, on USMLEs. So even the examinations in the U.S. and Canada are totally different because of that concept. Like the U.S. revolves all around, oh, what test are you going to do or what what drug are you going to give them? Where in Canada, it really, if if you even actually look at their, that big, huge book, I forgot what the Toronto Notes they're called, that we study for our Canadian exams, the IMCCs, It's all about diagnosis. Treatment was a part of it, but the most important part was diagnosis. History, physical exam, fifing the patient, finding the root cause. And so it's just a completely different philosophy. And I think the opportunity that I had, first of all, to study in Canada and to travel around the world to see what gynecologists are doing in other countries really enlightened me. And then when I became the part of SLS and on the board of SLS, I again traveled the world. I went to forty-five different countries, lecturing as part of the world team. And yes, I'm lecturing and I'm giving them my knowledge, but I'm also absorbing everything that they have. You know what I mean? And well, I think that unique perspective is really what makes me look at gynecology, medicine, women's health so differently than kind of the standard gynecologist out there. And I really think it's an opportunity that. I mean, most gynecologists should have. I wish we could like encapsulate it, you know, and you know, feed it to them. But you know, I have to have that passion to do that. And and I spent a lot of time and money, obviously, doing that. But it's made me ultimately a much better surgeon, a much better doctor. I think a much better human being in general. And I mean, I I would highly recommend that that people do that. And I and I even talk. You know, that's part of the reason I was so passionate about SLS. And I just recently stepped down from my I'm past president now of Society of Laparoscopic Surgeons, but they, SLS was very into the world view. Like we have a whole world, global perspectives um, day in SLS. They're very into multidisciplinary, having general surgeons, urologists, gynecologists talk together, pelvic pain specialists. Like it's very multidisciplinary and being, going to that conference every year, actually I'm, I've been organizing that conference for the last 10 years. So you know, always trying to bring in new concepts, new education. It's different than the kind of the standard American conferences and i and I always tell my American colleagues like you need to go to an international conference at least once every other year or something. Just see what's going on somewhere else. We're not the center of the world as much as we may think we are. We're not uh, There's a lot going on outside and and there's a lot of restrictions, and I think you have to you have to learn from other cultures and other people in order to know what we're doing, is it good or not? Or is there some way we can make it better, right? Absolutely.
0: I love this idea of FIFE. And I think, you know, when you're in the whole women's health space, if we aren't diagnosing correctly, how are we going to treat co- correctly? We can't just throw things at people. We have to actually know, hey, all the different aspects of the, di- of the diagnosis, right? And
1: if we're not diagnosing correctly, then we can't treat correctly. So I, I, I love this... That, like the diet, it's not only not only is the diagnosis important, but what the patient needs is different from patient to patient. Like they were they I've been approached many times to write a protocol for treatment for endometriosis. It's impossible. Every patient is different. Every patient has different goals. Some of them want to get pregnant, some of them want to get out of pain. Some of them their sexual functions are most important. Some of them don't tolerate hormones. Some of them already had surgery. Like, there's just so many aspects. You can, it's not a protocoled approach. Every patient is individual. You have to listen to that patient. What are their issues? What are their problems? What do they want to gain? And then you have to structure your treatment about, around their needs, not what I think is right, right? So that's, that's the important thing. And I so let's just review
0: this five. So feelings, ideas, fears, expectations, is that right? That's correct, yeah. That's awesome. I I love this idea as, you know, I do some training and educating in our community just with family practice residents to help them know how to talk about, you know, pelvic health issues with their patients because we know so many primary care physicians are the first people that are actually seeing people who might have primary, you know, pelvic health pain patterns, endometriosis, you know, all kinds of infertility issues. But if they don't know how to do this FIFE component, I think sometimes it all gets missed. So helping them have the words and being comfortable actually asking the questions, because many of them will tell me, oh, I, I never even learned how to screen or learn even to have a perspective about how to talk about pelvic health. So did that come easy to you? Or, or was that something you kind of had to
1: learn? I mean, honestly, so long ago now, I mean, I'm 25 years out of medical school. No, I think it was really easy for me. I mean, I've always been one of those people who, you know, was a listener. I was like the nurturer in my family and took care of everyone else. Like even from a young age. And I think that just that was just innate to me. But I love the structure of it and I and I love the holistic concept. And then again in medical school I was really lucky. I had I, From the beginning, the first day, they're like, do you what kind of mentor do you want? And I said, I want a gynecologist, right? So they they hooked me up with a gynecologist, several gynecologists, actually. But the main one was Dr. Akira Sugimoto. And my first year and summer of medical school, I never actually went home for summer. I just spent the entire summer with him. And he was a GYN oncologist. And he just had this, like, way of speaking with patients. that was just so compassionate, caring. Like, and he was amazing in surgery. Like, it looked like it was like you were watching a ballet or a symphony. And he became like, oh, my God, I want to do this is what I want to become. And I remember I used to I mean, I was 17, but I used to go home and pray every night that God would make me the best surgeon in the world and the best doctor in the world. And I would literally like get up in the middle of the night, get down on my knees and pray to God that that's what would happen and that all this work would be worth it. And, and so I was just, I mean, I was really lucky. I mean, obviously there's an innate, but there's a direction that happens. And I think that environment was really, I mean, it was just the perfect environment for me to, to develop those skills. Right. So, you know, I did my first hysterectomy when I was like 18. So it's like, (laughs) like second nature to me, you know? So
0: So early on, you know, so some people maybe don't understand, you know, laparoscopic surgical procedures, robotic, will you talk a little bit about, you know, those procedures and then how you trained in them so people understand the difference maybe between a general surgeon and someone
1: that does what you do. Yeah. I mean, there's a big difference, but I mean, let's just talk about like the types of surgery in general, right? So there's open surgery, which is the traditional, you know, you cut someone open you open up their abdomen and then you go in and you do whatever it is you're going to do, right? Remove an ovary, remove a uterus, you know, whatever it is. That kind of has gone way by the wayside, especially over the last, you know, 20, 30 years with the advent of laparoscopy. So laparoscopy, instead of us cutting someone open to do the surgery, we put a camera through the belly button and then we put little ports where we put instruments through the abdominal wall into the abdomen. And then we use those instruments, usually like something to pick up with and something to cut with and where we can do the surgery laparoscopically with these, what they call keyhole surgery or whatever you want to call it. So instruments through the abdomen. And then came the advent of robotics. So what robotic surgery is, it is a laparoscopic surgery. So you still have a camera and you have instruments that go inside. But I explained it to my patient. It's kind of like a wee. right? These instruments inside the patient, I go to a control center and I control them. And they do ev- everything my hand does. So if I want to pick something up or I want to cut something or whatever my hand does, the robot does in a better way meaning it has no tremor, it's scaled down, it's more precise. And then my my robot eyes are 3D HD 10x, you know, 4K, you know. So basically it's like shrinking me and putting me inside the patient with the same ability and dexterity of my hands to be able to do really delicate surgery which I think for endometriosis has been phenomenal because a lot of times we the endometriosis is very dense and tough and you have to really dissect out structures carefully without causing injury and trying to minimize the kind of damage you do with a surgery while still removing the disease so it's kind of like and it's very i always say it's even more difficult than cancer surgery because with cancer surgery you just go in and remove it all like you pick it up like you just take it all out the whole in block but with endometriosis surgery you're trying to in most cases you're trying to preserve fertility which means that you have to remove the disease, but leave functional organs behind, right? You still need a functional uterus, you need functional tubes, you need functional ovaries. And so that is a very delicate process that, that requires a lot of skill and a lot of experience and very good tools, which I think the robot has really revolutionized that and changed that, that and other things like the laser and, and other energy devices. And then I also learned, which there's not a lot of people that do this, but mini micro laparoscopy is like laparoscopy, but instead of these large instruments that are like the size of my finger that go through the abdominal wall, we use two, three millimeter instruments. So they're like the size of needles that go through the abdominal wall. And so it's called needleoscopy, but basically we have a little teeny tiny three millimeter camera and little teeny tiny instruments which is ideal for a couple of scenarios. Number one, teenagers, right? Young women who are very active, who don't want scars on their abdomen, who just don't know if they have endo. And usually their endometriosis isn't very severe. So you can usually do their surgery laparoscopically using the mini instruments. Second about fertility patients. There's a lot of fertility patients that don't have a lot of symptoms, but their fertility is affected. Perfect you know, scenario to do mini micro laparoscopy. The third is patients where you just don't know what's going on. It's really nice to start with a three millimeter camera. And the reason is with these tiny needles through the abdomen, you don't have the restrictions of surgery. First of all, your healing is two to three days with no narcotics and you're back to normal within like three to five days. You can go back to normal activities. You can exercise. You can do all these things. When you do put those larger incisions through the abdominal wall, it does take a little bit longer to be able to heal enough that you can do heavy lifting or major exercise even though the healing process is usually still 7 to 12 7 to 14 days it's it's a, a longer healing process so you know what i i almost don't do laparoscopy traditional laparoscopy anymore i i either do mini where i can do most laparoscopic things or i do robotics for the more complicated cases but it's just amazing how much the technology has advanced and that we can even do surgeries with little literally scarless surgery with these little tiny needles that go through the abdominal wall so
0: That's absolutely incredible. Will you tell me about the laser too that you were talking about as well?
1: Yeah. So, when you, it's a concept where, again, in order to minimize adhesions, trauma to tissue, and try to preserve fertility or preserve organs, when you're cutting endometriosis or tissue off of something, like off of the ureter, off of the tube, or off of something, if we use traditional laparoscopic or robotic instruments, even, you end up using some kind of electrical current or energy to cut with. So it causes some thermal damage. It heats up the tissue and it can cause a burn basically where you've cut. With the laser, you can cut with laser precision. So it's basically like a sharp cut, but with the hemostasis of energy. So meaning you can cut without bleeding in a very, like literally laser precision, like with very little damage to surrounding tissue which is, again, perfect for fertility patients, pre-fertility patients, young patients, patients where you really have to cut into like areas that are very sensitive, like off of the ureter, off of the rectum. The 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 risk of damage to tissue, the risk of adhesions, the risk of bleeding, the risk of thermal issues, scar tissue is, is much less with the laser. So it, it's another technique or another like thing that I've added to my ornamentarium of of surgical techniques. And again, not a lot of people use the laser, but I, you know, every, every year I teach the course, right. I teach laser course at SLS. I teach a laser course and I, I teach a mini laparoscopy course and everybody's amazed. It's amazing. It's so great, but very few people leave the course and then actually go do it, which is very frustrating as an instructor because I'm like, I'm teaching it to you so you can go do it just kidding. So, so, um, no, no, why do you, why do you think that is It is just hard to adopt new I think, technologies. I think it's partly that, you know, it's hard to bring new technologies into the hospital. You have to really fight for it. And I have fought for it everywhere I've worked. Number two, it's a comfort level thing, you know, confidence, you know, it is hard to just go to a course and implement. Now I have, and but, but I have a different level of confidence in my surgical skill then some people, which is why, I mean, actually, I'm starting a fellowship in endometriosis and advanced surgery techniques starting this July. I'm looking for candidates right now, but I want surgeons that are already doing, and you know, at least minimally invasive GYN surgery who want to go into that nitty gritty of, you know, delicate endometriosis surgery. I'm not really looking for new grad residents because they don't have the base level of skill to do my type of surgery. I want someone who's already a minimally invasive surgeon who wants to spend a year really learning everything there is to know about endometriosis, imaging, laser, mini laparoscopy, ultrasound, pelvic pain, nerve blocks, all the things that I do that are additional to what you would normally learn in a in a, in a MIGS fellowship or a or residency. So, you know, I think that will be really great because my plan is as part of the Oradi Clinic to, to teach a fellow, have them join me, And then we can teach more fellows and spread them around so that we can share some of this knowledge and experience kind of everywhere. Because I am only one person, although San Francisco is a great place to visit. So it's not, (laughs) I do have a lot of people traveling to see me, but I also want to, you know, share that knowledge and spread it as well. Absolutely.
0: So you (laughs) would accept one fellow in, is that kind of the goal then of it? Well, one fellow per year. What per year. Okay. I gotcha. So, you know, with this whole micro, you know, how you talked about the mini micro with that small, how how did
1: you learn all of that work and where did you learn that work? So micro laparoscopy, I mean, I I was exposed to it through my travels on the world team on SLS, through an SLS course, Brazil and France is where they, they really, mini micro laparoscopy is more common. I think because women are, really care about their scars on the abdomen. And so it's, it's very popular there. But that's where I learned it. And then once I, you know, once I've seen, saw it, did a couple cases, did the course, you know, and then I, I started implementing it in my own practice. It's honestly not that different than laparoscopy. It's just smaller instruments. It's the same surgery, just smaller Tool.
0: So what I sort of, what I like about this is because I, we end up seeing so many patients, for example, who maybe have seen five different cert- physicians. They, they don't really know if they have endo, they really don't know, you know, if they really want a laparoscopy surgical right. procedure. It sounds like this is actually, especially in my, a lot of my young women, I just had a woman this week, you know, 21, you know, five different surgeons in the, or people in the last uh, physicians in the last year where she's like, hey, I, I don't know if I want to actually go in and look. This is an amazing way then to be able to see this. So young people, fertility issues and then unknown causes is basically what you're saying with this. And then we don't have all the scarring maybe or all of that in the abdomen.
1: Yeah, there's no scarring. The recovery's super fast. I mean, the patients I've operated on with it are tend to be like athletes, acrobats, you know, teenagers, you know, and and young women, fertility patients who, you know, may have maybe have a positive receptiva and have no symptoms of endometriosis. Like those are the perfect candidates because you're not putting them through the big surgery when you don't yet know if they even have a lot of endometriosis. And I can treat most endometriosis that's mild or moderate, like up to stage two, maybe even yeah, up to stage two I can treat with the mini life. That's amazing. So
0: I'm going to just tell us a little bit too, like with your fertility work that you did, have you been kind of doing this all along or has this been something more that you've gotten involved in, you know, as you grew in this work or tell me about that?
1: So honestly, it's kind of evolved. You know, when I was at Henry Ford and Cleveland Clinic, I was more of a fibroids person, but with fibroids, you ran into endo a lot, right? Because 70% of people with fibroids have endometriosis so i was kind of like the fibroid specialist but i every time i'd go in to do a myomectomy or sometimes a hysterectomy in patients i found out that the patients especially the ones with pain a lot of them have endo and so i ended up doing endo on top of the fibroid surgery so and, and then i actually took a I <clears throat> i took a i did a sabbatical and actually went to italy to a fibroid to an endometriosis center just to learn deep infiltrating endometriosis so I actually did a sabbatical just it's kind of become comfortable with D.I.E. And then after that, I came to California and I started doing that work. The fertility work, honestly, when I came to California, I started telling some of the fertility specialists around about the different techniques that I use and things like that. They sent me patients kind of just to see. And then all those patients got pregnant. And then it was like, well why are we sending her more patients? And then, so I find it, I kind of became like the fertility surgeon in San Francisco because I, the patients I'd operate on would get pregnant and the fertility centers were like, Hey, if we can improve our pregnancy rates, you know, by sending her to Dr. Arani first, why not? You know, so that, that's kind of what happened. So it it was more of, I, I didn't come to San Francisco planning to become the fertility surgeon mm-hmm. of San Francisco, but it kind of evolved that way. So I mean, I probably see about 50% of my patients are fertility seeking or they want fertility in the near future and about, or they've already failed IVF and they need to get pregnant. Um, And 50% are like pain, you know, chronic pelvic pain or bowel dysfunction or, you know, possibly some diaphragm endo or bladder endo or or things like that. And then I have a small contingent. I probably have a 10% teen population because I also became the pediatric persons because I I am trained in pediatric gynecology too. I told you I was going to do a pediatric fellowship. So I also do like probably 10% teens and then I have, you know, 30 to 40% fertility and then, you know, 30, 40% pain, but I also do fibroids too. So, but there's a lot of overlap in there. So I I also do a lot of the, the fertility fibroid, you know, uterus preserving fibroid surgery as well. And then I have a small contingent of like the weird stuff, like the malarian anomalies, the didelphic uterus, the uterine septums, the, you know, duplicated vaginas, like the the kind of like the weird and wonderful stuff too. So I have a small area of of that as well. So so I don't know how to, how to say it. I guess I was good at it and that's why I became that person, but it wasn't like in my plan. I just, just kind of evolved, you know.
0: Well, talk a little bit too. I you you mentioned it before, but how much
1: you know, the endo and the fertility cross over. Oh, yeah. I mean, for, I mean, if you look at the numbers, right, 50% of patients with endometriosis will have difficulty getting pregnant. 50% don't. They do get pregnant. Mostly patients who are lower stage and younger get pregnant. And the ones that are higher stage and a little bit older, they're the ones who end up needing assistance as a general rule. I'm not going to say it like that. That's not across the board, but that's just a generalization. For the patients that have endo that can't get pregnant on their own, generally, for most people, the recommendation has been IVF. But I kind of feel like, well, if you can treat their endo, they can get pregnant. Do you really need the IVF? I do think you should have IVF if you have diminished ovarian reserve. Like if you don't have good egg counts, then do the IVF so you can bank embryos for like the next pregnancy. Like most people aren't going to want to have just one kid. They usually want two. So I would say do the IVF, preserve the embryos, but then before you start implanting and wasting embryos that they have implantation failure, you know, get evaluated for endo and possibly have surgery for endo. But at least get evaluated to see is it worth it or not. And if you de- if you have symptoms of endo, definitely do that because you don't want to have a kid and have chronic pelvic pain, right? Well, As a mom, absolutely, it's miserable. Exactly. So why don't we do two birds with one stone? Do the surgery, get rid of your pain, improve your fertility. And most of the studies, again, if you look at the German, Australian, Canadian literature, most of the studies show at least a triple implantation rate after endometriosis surgery. So why have a higher implantation rate so that that first embryo will stick. And now you don't have pain and now you can take care of that kid when they're born and now you have embryos for the future that you can then reimplant later. So my idea is a little bit of a different philosophy. I think most fertility centers although I'm not going to say all of them, some of them are very endometriosis aware, but a lot of them are just thinking about oh let's just get them pregnant. Let's just do IVF. Let's just get them pregnant. Let's just do. It. And then once they fail, then they send them and they're like oh well, they're failing. You know. But why put someone through that? Those failures are heartbreaking. You're losing those embryos, you're losing the 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 hormones and the emotional toll that you have to go through to have an implantation failure in the end, it's heartbreaking. Like, I think women should be more aware, especially ones that have endo or have symptoms of endo that that maybe just improving their endometriosis can improve their fertility. And then maybe we can discuss the IVF, you know, if they have lower ovarian reserve or something like that. But I don't think jumping straight into IVF if you have infertility is good because at least half of people with infertility, have endometriosis at least. It's probably closer to eighty percent.
0: I know, and and this is the thing that I don't think a lot of these women know, right? They they have infertility issues, so they're they're always like, okay, Sherry, I'm gonna go now, you know, to start IVF, and I'm like, okay, I think you really need to be worked up first, and right? How, how do we get that word out? How do we teach? Oh women? How do we help them? It's so frustrating, I think, as well, because I feel like that's all I talk about. And yet I feel
1: like still so many people don't know. And again, it might be my Canadian background, but when we studied infertility, when I was in Canada, like diagnostic laparoscopy for endometriosis was like step one. In the US, IVF is step one. So it's, it, it's a completely different mindset shift than the, the rest of the world, honestly. Like the rest of the world, they don't jump into IVF until they have a diagnosis of what is causing that infertility and endometriosis is high up there. And as far as patients, maybe endometriosis is in their mind, but they tell me, well, why didn't my infertility doctor tell me that I could have endo or that this could impact my endo or could... They? And and this is, I don't know, it's an educational thing in, in the US again. Like endometriosis is not kind of high up on the, oh, I should tell the patient she may have endo and this could affect her fertility. It's always like, oh, you have infertility. Why don't we just do IVF or IUI or whatever? And then it's only after they fail that they start working it up, which I think is backwards. Why should we be implementing a treatment until you know what the cause is first? And then if IVF is a treatment, fine. But you have to discuss the disease process with the patient. You have to tell them it could be this. And I mean, now, I mean, thankfully, there's a lot more awareness. Receptiva testing is around. Like There's a lot more kind of talk amongst patients where patients are asking for this. They're saying, hey, do I have endo? Should I get evaluated? And I think eventually fertility doctors will catch on or the ones that are very endometriosis aware already have caught on. But it's not a universal. And I think, uh, honestly, the onus lands on the patient to kind of learn mm-hmm. that. And that's why these podcasts and what you're doing and what the Endo Summit is doing is so amazing because we are, I mean, the biggest thing we do is educate, right?
0: So absolutely.
1: And education has to be key in all this.
0: Will you tell me a little bit about the rest, uh, receptiva that you were just talking about?
1: So, there is a test that we do talk about at the endo summit. If you, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we've talked about it multiple times at the endo summit. There is a test for implantation, you know, kind of receptivity of the uterus. And there is one of the markers, which is a BCL6 that does correlate with endo. So, basically, If you are going undergoing infertility and you're trying to see is my uterus receptive to an embryo prior to implantation, and this receptiva test comes back with a positive BCL6, there's a 95% chance that you have endometriosis. So it's not a test that I don't think we should universally do to diagnose endometriosis, but I think infertility patients, especially ones that have failed an IVF cycle, it might be something to consider unless they just want to get evaluated for endo. I don't need the receptiva to diagnose endometriosis, I just get a lot of referrals for a positive receptiva because I'm the fertility surgeon. So when a patient has a positive receptiva, they end up in my office, I end up doing laparoscopy and then, and, you know, and then they get pregnant later. But that that's why I see it a lot. And, I, and, and, and that's why I talk about it a lot. It's because I just see so many patients with it. I actually do receptiva testing in my office if a patient wants it. But I, I, again, I don't need it to diagnose endometriosis. But it is a tool that has brought an awareness to endometriosis higher up there because when the positive tests come back and the studies are showing that 95% of positives are have endo and that removing that endo improves their fertility, I think in the next 5 to 10 years, once we have these pub- studies published, a lot of people will be talking about endometriosis and fertility more. So I'm actually happy the test is available because it's kind of bringing a highlight that, hey, endometriosis is a thing and it can affect your, your implantation and it can affect your egg quality. And, you know, so I think what I'm happy about isn't necessarily that the test is there, which I I still like the test, though, for some people. It's more that I'm happy that it's bringing an awareness to endometriosis. And it also is easier to convince a patient with a positive test to have a laparos because they, I can tell them, you know, the studies have shown 95% of people with this positive do have endo because most of them are in denial. And almost all of them come in and they're like, I don't have any symptoms. And then I start asking them, well, do you wake up at night to pee? Well yeah. Like three or four times. I'm like, that's not normal. Well do you have pain with sex? Well yeah in certain positions. I'm like, yeah, well that's not normal. And they're like, what? what? And you know, I'm like, you don't have pain like before the period, the day before or two days before. Well, yeah, but that's normal. No, it's not you know so it feels like they come in with this i don't have any symptoms and then i start asking them about these symptoms and they're like well yeah well, i have that now that I think about it you know and so it's really <laughs> interesting because again there's there's so many symptoms that women have just learned to like accept oh it's not normal to have pain with sex or it's not normal sometimes have period poops where you have pain with pooping i'm like no and the period bloat you mean bloating a week before your period is not normal i'm like nope and they're like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? So it it is it is interesting. There is a certain percentage that don't have any symptoms, though, and those are the difficult ones. And those are the ones that I do recommend micro laparoscopy for because at least we can look and see if they have it or not. So,
0: yeah, and I I love that because so many of my younger population too, you know, they're just more hesitant. And if they had something that they could actually look, you know, see that, you know, or have that procedure done, and then they could actually know. Then, you know, and their downtime is so little. I
1: mean, it's it's yeah. amazing. Literally do the surgery on Friday or Wednesday, and and patients are back to their normal solves by Monday. It's like a so, you know. So Mona,
0: talk a little bit too. You know, just because you know sometimes people are confused about you know, like vaginal, you know, I I had a vaginal ultrasound, you know, I was told, oh, there's nothing going on. I had an MRI. Oh, nobody saw anything. Will you talk a little bit about that with us as well? Because there's a lot of frustration. I think sometimes, you know, when people have been worked up by multiple, you know, physicians and different people, but who maybe don't understand you know, fibroid and the crossing over between endo and adenomyosis, et cetera. And they need to understand just because they've been told, oh, that was negative, that that might not, in, you know, be true.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so much. I mean, you're opening up a can of worms here, but let me let me just I know a couple of things. Number one, fibroids don't cause pain. So if someone tells you that your fibroids are causing your painful periods, they don't know what they're talking about. Fibroids cause bleeding. They can cause mass effect pressure. They don't cause pain. If you have fibroids and pain, you have endo as well. Number two, that's, I'm just going to give some very quick bullet points. Number two, endometriosis does not cause heavy bleeding. Okay? Adenomyosis causes heavy bleeding. It's not endometriosis. It's adenomyosis. The treatment for adenomyosis is different than endometriosis because adenomyosis is within the uterus. Endometriosis right. is external to the uterus. That's number two. There's a lot of overlap between the two, so you have to be careful about the diagnosis. Number three. Just because a radiologist said your ultrasound is normal does not mean that your ultrasound is normal. Almost every patient that comes to me has had a normal ultrasound and they're not normal. I do the ultrasound. I see the endo. I see the effects of the endo. And it's because the radiologist is just reading numbers. How big is the uterus? How big is the ovary? They're not looking at the positioning. Like, let me give you just a very simple, quick example, because a lot of people like are mind blown by this. So we are born with our uterus in the middle and our ovaries to the side. So like this, uterus in the middle, ovaries to the side. If we come in and my uterus is tilted left or right, it's endo. There's nothing else that causes your uterus to, put, to be stuck on one side or the other. If I have one ovary behind and one ovary in front, that's not normal. It's endo. But the ultrasound that the radiologist does is going to say it's normal because the measurements are normal. But the patient of the, the organs is not. And they don't comment that in the ultrasound. That's number one. Same with MRI. They don't comment on that. So you have to know what you're looking for in order to diagnose it. And radiologists that read, that read some MRI, that some radiologists, there are some radiologists that are very specialized that know how to see those types of things. But I would say the great majority of radiologists, if they're not specialized in endometriosis, do not know how to see those things or comment on them. So that's why when I, when I, when I see a patient, I ultrasound them myself. And I I look at the MRI images myself. I will look at the report just out of curiosity to see kind of what they mentioned. But I, I've learned to read the MRIs myself and I've learned how to do ultrasounds myself because that's the only way that I feel like I can accurately diagnose endometriosis and adenomyosis is by looking with my own eyes. Is that, that's a very it short, because I know we don't have a lot of time, but those are like just bullet no. points.
0: No, I really appreciate that because that just helps clarify for people when they're listening um, and, you know, trying to understand, oh, I've been told all these things. And, you know, if they don't follow through, then, you know, they're out there. And this is why so many endo patients aren't getting help for, you know, seven to 10 years. So, right. and, you know, we're just trying to stop that from it's happening. It's frustrating
1: so- to, me, to me as well, because it, it, it honestly gaslights these patients. Like they come in and they like, Literally, when I tell them, well, you have endometriosis, like they start crying because finally someone has validated the pain that they're in and the suffering they're having when they just thought it was just them. It's just their problem. Like, so it's just it's very frustrating. I wish there would be a disclaimer by the radiologist. Oh, by the way, we don't know how to look at endo or something like that so that we would like we could the patient wouldn't feel they're, they're invalidated. But again, I'm hoping with all the education we're doing with the endo summit, with SLS, with you know, that over the next couple of years and the discussions happening with patients, that there will be so much more education about this subject because it is really so important. So just
0: so everybody realizes, you know, what the whole SLS is, will you tell us a little bit about just SLS? Yeah. You were on the board, you were the passport president and here you yeah. help with so much programming. Just explain what that is for people.
1: Yeah, so SLS is a society of laparoscopic and robotic surgeons. It's a multidisciplinary international society. So we have members of doctors from all over the world, from all laparoscopic specialties. So you, the big three, gynecology, general surgery, and urology, which are the, the three most important. And we also have thoracic surgery, pediatric surgery, but those are the, the big three members. And the, the society is basically committed to teaching advanced minimally invasive surgery to surgeons across the world. And so, you know, we have a world team, and part of that world team, we travel around. And, you know, we share knowledge, and we also have an, a, a yearly conference where everybody comes together and we we share knowledge. And it's 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 a small yet big society in that it's not like the big, you know, you know, ACOG and the really big, you know, gynecologic societies, but it's very impactful because it talks about the things that aren't commonly talked about. And it also has cross knowledge between specialties, right? Between gynecologists. Because most of the time, a gynecologist will go to a GYN society meeting, and they talk only about gynecology. And the general surgeons go to a general surgery meeting, and they talk only about general surgery. And the urologists go to urology, and they all talk only about urology. This is the one place where they all talk together. And endometriosis is a big subject because it's the one disease that crosses into all of those realms, right? and which can affect the bladder the ureters it can affect the bowel it can affect the appendix it can affect the upper area it can affect so that it's the one disease that is truly multidisciplinary and that's why i think we, we talk a lot about it at at sls so that's kind of the... so
0: Mona, tell, tell me a little bit about your journey as a woman being involved in in this work And you know, maybe some of the challenges
1: and then just some of the the joy that you've had with all of it too. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, first of all, you have to realize I'm a woman. I'm, in case you haven't noticed, I'm a covered woman. I'm a colored woman. And I was a very young woman, right? I was like 21 when I started residency. So to get taken seriously with all of those things, was a feat, right? I had to be like the loudest person, the most smart person, the most skilled person, the most passionate person, the best speaker, the best surgeon. The be- Yeah, I had to be the best, right? To get any kind of attention. Otherwise you're just kind of like, oh. And, and it's really interesting and it's really funny when I when I look back, you know, when I first started going to conferences and presenting my work and my research and my surgeries and stuff like that, I would go to the conference day one. Everybody would be like, like, I was the odd man out. Like, who is this person? Why is she here? Right. Like, are you even a doctor? Like, that's kind of what I got. Do you speak English? And then, you know, I would give my lecture and then everybody wanted to talk to me. Oh, that's so interesting. How did you do this? How did you? And all of a sudden I became like the most popular person. Like, it was like an overnight change. Like the first day or two, nobody talked to me. And then I'd give my lecture and everybody's like, oh my God, that's so amazing. That's so fascinating. That's so, can you tell me more? And then everybody wanted to talk to me. And it was like, I would always laugh. I'm like, because you judged me based on how I looked the first two days. And now that I've shared my knowledge with you, now you want part of that knowledge. And now I'm popular. Like, it's just, it was, I mean, so I it's it's so funny, like how that evolves. And I'm not saying that people are, you know, discriminatory, but it's just, it's a nature, right? Like, who is this young kid, like, up on the podium, like, what's she talking about? She's like 20 years old, right? Like, <laughs> who's this person? Now, I mean, people know me, so it's, I don't get that so much, but I look back on that and I, and I laugh internally because it's, it, it was, it was so funny that that's how it always kind of came about. So, how, it it is a journey. I mean, it was, it's was a struggle, right? It's, it was hard. I always, I was always nervous. I always felt like, you know, I had to be the best. I was hyper vigilant, hyper diligent, whatever you want to call it. I always felt like someone was looking over my shoulder just waiting for me to make a mistake, you know? Like, the hawks would, like, eat me alive. Even one single mistake, which was was a struggle. Like, I mean, even to this day, it, it is hard. Hard to be so different, you know? And you get questioned. Like, why are you doing that? Like, I remember when I started doing these really complicated surgeries at Henry Ford, which was, like, like right at the beginning of robotics, like 2007, 2008, I was told, you can't do that. That's not possible. And I'd be like, well... I just did it. So why are you saying I can't do it? Because I just did it. Like, patient's fine. Like, what are you talking about? And so that actually was what pushed me into research. I'm like, okay, you think I shouldn't do this? Well, let's look at the outcomes. Look at these patients. They have less bleeding. They have less pain. They're home faster. They have better outcomes. Why can't we do it? Just because you can't do it doesn't mean it can't be done. You know, just because you don't have the skills to do these surgeries doesn't mean I can't do them. And it was always this kind of like, it was always this, this, I was always under the magnifying glass. And that's very stressful because you're trying to innovate, but yet you're scared of what people are going to say. And I honestly, I, I, as a Muslim woman, I've kind of learned to ignore, like, I'm just like, whatever, I'll just do it, whatever I need, you know? And I think it kind of helped me because I've always had that kind of people looking at me and saying, Oh, what's she doing? And, you know, and I think I just learned that I have to be my own self and have my own vision. And it, as long as I'm doing good in the world, I always trusted that God would let me succeed and prevail. Um, as long as I had good intention, I was trying to help people, then why would God make me fail? Like, that was always my kind of faith. Um, but it it was scary at times. There, I mean, I'm going to tell you, I mean, I went under review, you know, peer review. Every All of us have. And and try to justify the good work you're doing just in front of a committee that doesn't even understand what it is you're doing is very First of all, it's nerve wracking as all get out because you don't have control over what they're going to think. But it's also scary, right? Because but at the same time, you're trying to educate. Now, it, it is really difficult because most of the time they never understood what I was telling them, talking about, you know, but oh, well. <laughs> right. That answers your question. But yeah, it's it's just, it's difficult. So Mona, am I allowed to just what now? Right? That's why I'm creating my own clinic because I'm still the odd man out. I'm still the I'm like doing stuff over here that nobody even thinks about and and most people are like I don't know what she does.
0: So Mona, one night we were walking out of the end of Summit and you told me the whole story about a bodyguard. Am I allowed to bring that up because I love the whole idea of that, you know, you you traveled and you were young and you needed you know, to have
1: a bodyguard. Sure. You can tell it, but that, yeah, that was how I met my husband, but yeah. Okay. (laughs) he was my body.
0: The greatest story ever. I'm just going to say.
1: Sure. You can share it.
0: We were walking one evening and we were walking back to the car and Mona and her husband had given me a ride and we were at the endo summit and, and it was just so great because we were just chit-chatting and casual and, I just said oh you know how did you meet your husband et cetera?" and then she just told me this great thing that every time that you 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 went to Egypt right he was your bodyguard there yeah yeah
1: and what's interesting is like I mean I'm a very nice person but apparently I'm super intimidating to men which is you know so he didn't actually even ask me out for like five years and I'm like dude like you should have just said something you know. Because I was eyeing him, like, the whole time we were on that trip. And I'm like, what, you know, why didn't he ask me? No, like, I was, like, you know, giving him all the aids that a girl can give. I I it. it went totally past him. And then he, later on, he's like, when we when we were married, he's like, you know, I really wanted to talk to you. And I wanted to marry you back then. And I was like, why the hell did you say something? you wasted our time, you know, for it. <laughs> you know. to love it intimidating this world-renowned surgeon you know and I'm like your bodyguard like what am I supposed to oh yeah I love it The story is
0: absolutely wonderful so Mona before we close I just want to hear a little bit about the vision of this new clinic I was super excited when I learned about it and you kind of shared some different things you were looking at and I just love holistic work and all the work that I do in our community. I'm just super networked with everybody holistically, you know, because I just want to look
1: at the patient as a whole. So tell me a little bit about, you know, your vision for this. I mean, honestly, the ultimate vision, which I'm not, I'm very far off from this would be that I have like a whole health retreat kind of organized where people, women can come, you know, get diagnosed, see me, see, you know, mental health specialists, acupuncture, nutrition, physical therapy general surgery, urology, you know, GI, everybody they're going to need to see have surgery and go to like a wellness retreat while they're recovering from surgery where they learn, you know, all sorts of, you know, healing techniques. And that's my ultimate vision. Now I'm a way, like I'm about $10 million off from that. I need money, right? (laughs) I I love it. I need the surgery center. I was even thinking like we'd have like aromatherapy and massage therapy while you're waiting for surgery and like acupressure when you wake up from surgery and like all of these holistic, you know, integrative healing techniques that are well known, but not used at all. So, so I started like a little version of that. You know, I have a little recovery room in my office after procedures where we have aromatherapy, like face masks and soft music. Like, I want to create this kind of healing environment. It's not just I'm going to the doctor's office. Like, I don't want that sense. But I want to partner and I'm working right now to create these networks where I want to partner with these different people, like physical therapists, acupuncturists, you know, and integrative medicine people, holistic healers. I'm, I'm trying, I'm starting to create these combination of supplements that I want to create. Like I'm actually talking with a company about compounding you know, supplements that are well known to help with your right. fertility, all of these things. So, I mean, I have a lot that i am thinking about, but basically the concept is that I want a woman to be able to travel, see me, get surgery, and then also have leave with a comprehensive health plan. How am I going to manage my bladder symptoms, my bowel symptoms, my sexual dysfunction, my, my psychological health, and all of this. And I'm going to need help doing it. But the, I want to create, have it like a patient care coordinator that we're where the patient would leave with this plan. And where I actually learned that was again in Canada, the cancer center where I worked with my mentor. When a patient would come in, and most of these patients, because there's not a lot of cancer centers in Canada, they would travel to go to the cancer center, right? And they would have a meeting at the end of the week where they would talk about every patient and come up with what we call a care plan that included all this home health, you know, physical therapy, nutrition, you know, mental health, mental support and the surgery and the chemo and whatever medical they're going to need. And they would give the patient like a little packet with these. This is what your care plan is. And it was individualized to the patient. And I want to do something like that, you know, where we have a care team that we meet and then have a care coordinator that will follow up with the patient, you know, to have all of that. Am I there yet? No, I've only started. I just started three months ago, right? Like I'm still, <laughs> but that's the plan. Like that's what I'm trying to get to. Is having a more kind of well-rounded approach rather than it's just you come in and oh we're gonna do the surgery and then you know goodbye no and actually I had that I've always followed my patients post-op and I've created little care plans individually for people I just wanted to be more formal written out folder I also have like this vision of like a care basket that you would get when you have surgery that has resources and like the 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 holistic teas that my great my uh, my great-grandmother was like a midwife in in egypt so it would have like all the herbal combination that you use for gas pains post-op or you use for you know nausea post-op or whatever like all these herbal medications because i think medications are, are good in some scenarios but we should also use other techniques and more holistic mechanisms to treat people because i think medications all have side effects and I'm one of those people that really can't take any medications because I'm allergic to like everything. So literally everything. My, my allergy list is like 25 pages long. <laughs> so I've kind of like learned this holistic kind of integrated medicine as well as surgery. And I think you have to use a combination of things when you're treating someone.
0: And especially, it sounds like it goes way back, right? Here you're mentioning
1: your grandmother. I mean, that's- Like the grandmother, I I used to follow her around. Yeah, way back. My mother used to, she used to use a homeopathy uh, for treatment. She had I read a a homeopathy book when I was like nine years old. That was like my bedtime reading. So (laughs) I've always kind of had a pulse on it. And I also had really bad, painful periods, right? And I didn't tolerate birth control pills. Like they were, they'd make me like suicidal and so i i used to use all the herbals evening primrose oil fenugreek like so i i even in my own care i i used to use a lot of herbals in order to treat myself and my friends so i've kind of learned through my own experience how to how to, how to use other other options when you can't tolerate hormones or, or drugs you know it's amazing
0: well i really appreciate you spending your time with us today and being on the show i love education. And I, I just so appreciate, you know, that your devotion to all of this work and we women and women's health. And, you know, I just can't wait to see, you know, all the things that are going to go on. I love comprehensive care. I think if we can have comprehensive care like that, we're just going to take care of women so much better. And that's really what this is all about is long-term health for women. And then they facilitate their families and they go and do their gifting in the world. And you obviously have done your gifting in the world. And it's just been so fun to meet you and get to know you a little bit more today. So I really appreciate your time and I'll look forward to seeing you again at the end of Summit.
1: Yeah, me too. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Sounds great. Thank you so much, Mona, for being here today with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Perfect. We're good. Cool. My team, Mona, will just chop everything up and, you know, get stuff. You know, hold, you know, apart, etc. Oh, oh, you're there. hey Oh, oh that's well, Greg, fine. Greg, Greg, say hi to Mona. Mona, hi, hey, Greg. This
1: is. I, well, I mean, you know. I've been staring. My husband's like everything, right? Bodyguard, accountant, office manager, IT person, and you know,
0: Mona. When you were saying all that stuff, I was laughing because that is literally Greg's in my life, literally the whole time. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're, you're.